We come this morning to verses 20 and 23, the last section of the prayer that we're actually, it's in verses 20 through 26, but we're going to break it up into two parts and just look at the first three verses or four verses of that section this morning, and then we'll close next week before we get into our Christmas series on December 8th. John chapter 17, verses 20, reading through verse 23, I do not ask for these only, he was previously praying for his disciples, those who believe, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's you and me, that they may be, all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you loved me. This ends the reading of God's word. Praise be to God for those words. Have you ever, um, have you ever actually taken note of the uh, slogans of the Olympics? You know, every, every couple of years, every when Winter Olympics, Summer Olympics, each, each site, they, they create a slogan. In fact, when they, they try to make their candidacy for uh, getting the Olympic Games to come to a city or a particular country, they already have this slogan. It's part of their bid Man, if you ever read through them, it is cheeseball factor. (laughs) Listen to some of these. The Chicago Olympic big said, let friendship shine. Isn't it the murder capital of America? (laughs) This is actually their second choice uh, that they had. Uh, And then the first one was stir up your soul. Stir your soul. But they realized when they actually translated this in the most other uh, languages that it was translated as mix up your insides. And so they decided that let friendship shine was better. But some of the other past slogans, for example, South Korea was the first one. The first one, 19, I think it was 1988, that it was in Seoul, Korea. It was that harmony and peace was the slogan. Harmony and peace. Barcelona was friends forever. I think they took it from the Michael W. Smith song. Friends are friends forever. Christian skate night, baby. It's <laughs> Japan from this. Now, this is good. From around the world to flower as one. In Beijing, one world, one dream. Whatever that means. The trappings of the Olympics, of, in fact, the whole thing seems to be about the symbolism that is around it, is around the unity of our, the ideal of our unified world, that we have this world of peace and unity. The Olympic symbol, for example, right, is these interconnecting circles, these various circles becoming one kind of unit. And then there's the parade of nations, and then, of course, the, the various slogans that we just read. But so ever so often, you notice that the, the games don't really achieve quite what we hope, or, or things don't really last in that unified, peaceful place, right? Wasn't it uh, Hitler's Germany that hosted the Olympics in 1936, and then he then went on to pretty much, you know, go to war against everybody else who was there for the next 10 years? Or, for example, in 2014, Russia hosted the Winter Games. Four days after the Olympics were over, they invaded Crimea, Talk about a a short honeymoon of peace, love, and groovy feelings as a result of the Olympics. Unity is something that is prized among human beings. We try to tap into it. I mean, politicians run their campaigns on this idea, don't they? 
that I'm going to be a uniter, not a divider. A uniter, not a divider. Or even our, our, our companies now try to capitalize on this idea. I mean, it's the whole, the whole Coca-Cola campaign for the last decade has been about this idea, about world peace and unity, and we all unify around our love for Coke. That if we just hugged polar bears and drank Coke, if you hug a polar bear, my guess is you will not feel a, a peace, love, and groovy feeling with that polar bear, though. The desire for unity is strong, and yet, and yet, it all seems so utopian, doesn't it? All of our, our kind of images for unity, it's a, a real unity is actually quite elusive to us. For example, in our country, right, have we ever been perhaps more politically divided? Or at least right now, our political partisanship is horrendously awful. At least the, exper- the experience of everyday life feels that way. And some of you are going to get an even worse experience this week on Thursday during Thanksgiving dinner. If all this world and national division weren't enough, our disunity, our disunity actually hurts a whole lot more when we come down to smaller units. That when our families are broken up by disharmony, when fathers and sons no longer speak to each other, when husbands and wives wives may live in the same house but sleep in separate bedrooms or live parallel lives, when churches that once flourished are split by infighting, in backbiting, in gossip, and dissension. This is not the way it was supposed to be, is it? You see, we were made for community. We were made to be together. We desperately need one another, and yet, for the most part, we can't stand each other. How is it that people who are supposed to be united together can actually remain unified? It is no wonder that Jesus prays for unity, and in fact... And in fact, Jesus prays for unity four times in the course of this prayer. That if you want to know what Jesus cares about, he cares about unity. He cares about his people being unified from verses 11 through verse 23. Four times he prays for it. In fact, one of the things that you'll see, you know, mo- various places, you'll look at uh, various components of Jesus' teachings or other spots in the scriptures, and a, a good teacher will point out that when a teacher or when Jesus points out in a story, if he says something three times, that means it's really, really important. Well, what happens when you point out something four times? And it's like uber, uber important. Unity. Jesus prays for unity four times. And so this This morning, we get to listen in on Jesus' prayer for our unity. He longs for his people to be unified. And so what does his prayer teach us? Three things I want you to see about unity this morning that we can learn from Jesus' prayer. Jesus' prayer on unity reveals to us, first, the nature of our unity. The nature of our unity. And it is important here that we don't let the heart get before the horse. Because so often, whenever we talk about unity in the history of the church, we immediately jumped to a lot of the, I don't want to d- demean it, but surface level, the fruit of what is actually our unity. We look to various aspects that are surface level, that are visual, that are consequences of our spiritual unity. And when we do that, when we get the cart before the horse, we actually become quite reductionistic in our unity, in the nature of our unity with an actual why up there. So where we reduce our unity when we, when we put the car before the horse, when we're after something, simply visible manifestations and expressions of unity, before we're after the spiritual reality of it first, we reduce it down. 
We reduce it down to merely external, institutional, or organizational forms of unity. For example, after World War II, much of the world gathered around this thing called the United Nations, and the church was no different. And for much of the 40s, 50s, and 60s, much of the effort of the global church around the world was around unifying the church, and various bodies were created, such as the World Council of Churches, in which they said, if we're really going to be unified, then we need to form an organization, one church, one life, and we'll be unified under the name of Jesus. But unity is not based on everyone being a part of the same organization or even going under the same name. The goal of unity, and what we mean by unity, doesn't mean that we all go under the name of Baptists or Presbyterians or Methodists. Nor do we reduce it down to, well, I'm just simply a Christian and we'll just leave it at that without defining what that means. Unity is not simply, is neither is it unity is not simply based on having some mission statement or even the same cause Right? Many Christians will have, within the mission of God, will have various causes that we go after, that we dedicate our lives to. Unity is not based on all submitting to the same governmental authority. The church has essentially had that at once in its own, in its history. The Roman Catholic Church is all under the authority of the Pope and the Academy of Cardinals in Rome, and yet no one would declare, and I don't think they would either, that there is much unity actually within their body. Or... Or in an attempt to get an organized unity, we have often reduced unity to what we might call a minimalist conformity. In other words, we do this. In order to try to create some visible manifestation of unity, we simply find the fewest amount of things that we can agree on. What's, we, we create the lowest common denominator. Or perhaps even worse, we simply, in order to have some form of expression of unity, we actually seek to conform to one another or conform the pattern of our lives in a certain way. Therefore, you can even see in the history of the church that there's various churches that go by the name of their own nationality. You get things like the, um, the Greek Orthodox Church of some tiny little region. You get these you know, um, conformity around particular diverse t- styles of lifestyle or race or ethnicity or even personality types and interests. But these methods, simply because you may have a Harley group who call themselves Christians, does not mean that that is what we're after for Christian unity. What I want you to see here is that if we're going to have unity in the way that Jesus prays for unity, it is not organizational unity or unity around some conformity where all Christians look the same. In fact, that's actually a violation of what we want the body of Christ to look like. We ought to be different with different gifts and different races and different backgrounds and different lifestyles. And yet, what is the, what is the unity that Jesus is after here? The answer, the answer is found in the passage. Two times it says it, verses 21 and 23. He says it this way, or verses 21 and 22, that they may be one just as. That's, when you see that just as, it's telling you how, what is the model? What is, what is it supposed to look like? Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And then verse 22, that they may be one, Jesus is talking to the Father again, that they may be one, that they may be unified just as we are one. So what kind of unity are we after as Christians? Here's the mind-blowing model that we're given, the paradigm that we're given here by Jesus, is that the unity that we're after is a unity that is analogous to the unity between the members of the Trinity. 
right? I mean, that sounds utterly utopian and almost ridiculous. You go, oh, you, you know, I could say it. Hey, brothers and sisters, we should be united like God is unified. And we go, yes, that's very nice. Wait, what? You're telling me I have to be unified like, by a, about, like the Trinity is unified? I don't even understand the Trinity. The Trinity is a mystery to me. Well, let's see if we can bring it down a little bit and look at some aspects of the Trinitarian love and unity and maybe how that can help us understand what it looks like for us to be united together spiritually. How is our unity to be like the unity of the Trinity? Well, I'll give you five quick reasons, ways. First, we have a unity in the midst of our diversity. We have a unity in the midst of our diversity. One of the things about that's, that's a mystery about our God, but is absolutely required and is of, uh, of absolute necessity, is that we have a God who is one, but he is also a God who is in three persons. That's, that God is same, and those three persons are same in substance, equal in power and glory, and yet those three persons are indeed distinct from one another. The Father has a role in salvation, Jesus has a role in salvation, and the Spirit has a particular role in salvation, and yet they all have the same mission, they are all the same essence and substance. In the Godhead, there is a unity in the midst of some sense of diversity, They are distinct people. But Jesus says, and in the same way, it is analogous that God's people would be united in much that same way. That we are united not around a conformity, not that we are all little peons and minions where we all just kind of look exactly the same and have the same expressions and come from the same race and live our lives in exactly the same way. But we are to be what? A people of all tribes, tongues, and people. We're to be of our different personalities, but we are to find unity in the midst of our diversity. Jesus says, I've come to create a new community, a new race, it says in Galatians. There's neither slave nor free, Jew or Gentile, man or woman. We are one family, one holy, universal, apostolic church, but made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation. One while unified in the midst of our diversity. Second, we see this, that in looking at the analogy of the Trinity, we have, co- we have unity in our common nature. All of us in this room shares the same nature. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit were of the same substance. They had the same attributes, the same character. In much the same way, we are of the same substance and character. Why? You might say, well, we're all the same of the world of the human race. Well, that's true, but that could be true said of anybody in the world. What does it mean to be unified as Christians? It means we share in the divine life of God. We have the same daddy, in other words, what we're saying. And 1 John 3, verse 9 says that we are born of God. The word there for born is the word genus or seed. That the seed that is in you is the seed that is in me. That we sing, that we, we share the same spiritual genetic code. And that code is the spirit of the living God in the person of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3 says, For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews are grieved, slaves are free. All were made to drink of one spirit. We drink and have our subsistence and our life in one God. In Ephesians chapter 4, 3, it says, Be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. It is the unity of the spirit. That what the nature that resides in you is the same nature that resides in me. That we are brothers and sisters. That we are a family because we have the same Father. Third, third, just as God and the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they have this relationship. They are unified in their mutual love and loyalty to one another. And so in, in an analogous way, we are to be mutually unified in our love and loyalty for one another. 
And this is really important to get. I'm going to try to get, help you understand the nature of the relationship of the Trinity to one another in this way by using the Greek word periokoresis. It's actually it's where we get the word Trinity. It's the Greek word that goes up underneath it. In the Greek, the, the word periokoresis has two parts to it. It has the prefix perio, which means perimeter, circle, around. And choresis is where we get the word choreography. So it's a dance that runs in a circle. This is the Trinity. In other words, when we say, we describe God as he is described in the scriptures as three persons in one God, we are saying that this Trinity is a dancing circle. There's actually this, in this Greek, there's actually a Greek form of dance called perichoresis. And the nature of this dance is this, is that all, it's a three-person dance in which the three persons are always dancing around one another in a continuous circle around the others in such a way that they go faster and faster and faster that it actually creates this visual illusion where you, there are three people dancing, but if you're kind of at a distance from them, it looks like one person. And this is how it is with the Trinity. Tim Keller describes it very illustratively this way. He says, The Father, Son, and Spirit are characterized in their very essence by mutual self-giving love. The Father, Son, and the Spirit, each one is moving towards each other, orbiting around the others. You have a dance, a dance of joy, each one pouring love and joy and adoration into the other, each one deferring to other, the other, serving the others, putting the interests of the other over their own. That's the dance of the Trinity. And in an analogous way, this is what the dance of the life of the church is supposed to be. A life where we, what, defer to one another, serve one another, bear one of those burdens, where we make life center around others and don't make them circle their life around us. Imagine reading that same kind of quote that I just read there about the Trinity except describing it as the members of King's Chapel. Each member of the members of King's Chapel Church centers upon the others. Each member of the church doesn't demand to have others revolve around them. Each member of the church encircles the others with a pouring out of love and delight and affection. Each member of the church loves, rejoices, and defers to the others, and it creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of love. This is the unity that we're after. There is a constant interplay of this mutual love amongst the body of believers, a unity amongst each other. This is the third. Fourth, we have unity in our ultimate purpose. Just as the Trinity has an ultimate purpose that they are unified, they had an ultimate purpose of bringing glory to the other members of the Trinity through the salvation of sinners. John 6, 38, Jesus says this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus says this in 17.4 of John, I glorified you, Father, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus and the Father and the Spirit, they fulfill the same person and purpose and mission in this world. They have the same goals, and so the church does as well. Jesus says this in John 17, verses 18. He says, just as God, God, the Father sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. We are to be a people who all have one mission, and what is our mission? The same church, every church should have the same mission. It is the mission of making disciples of all peoples to the glory of God. We all have the same purpose and the same mission. And then lastly and fifthly, we have unity in our faith. Unity in our faith. Now, obviously, the Trinity has no need for faith in the way we necessarily need faith. 
But the Trinity has a common trust in the other members of the Trinity. The Father trusts the Son to accomplish his work. The Father and the Son trust the Spirit to accomplish his work and bring us home faithfully. Our unity as Christians has to be grounded in a common shared profession of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 4, chapter 4, verse 13 says this, that we are to build and equip each other, that we've been given the apostles and prophets and teachers until we all attain to what? The unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The unity we pursue is faith in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the truth that the apostles preached. They preached the same gospel, and we are to believe in the same gospel. And therefore, Paul can say in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, he said this, There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Here's what I want you to see. It is our unity is objectively present. We already have it, spiritually speaking. That if you're called God's children, we are all brought into one family. We all submit to one Lord. All true Christians submit to one Lord. We all trust in one Savior. We are all united together by one baptism in the Holy Spirit. And before we can manifest unity in the world, we have to understand and come back to the fact that it is ultimately a spiritual unity is what Jesus is praying for here. That we don't make unity about something institutional or organizational, or we don't dumb down our unity to something so, so conformist and so small, but we actually begin here at the fact that we have a spiritual unity in Christ Jesus, that we have one Lord, we serve the Father, and we submit to his kingship, that we have one faith, that we trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, and that we have one spirit, baptism, who unites us all. And so it is a spiritual principle that is analogous to the unity in the Trinity. Now you're going, okay, that's nice. I, 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 you haven't gotten to the hard part. Like, okay, we've got this spiritual unity in Christ Jesus. Yes, we go back to that. But what about making it evident? And that is true, we have to make it evident, don't we? That this spiritual principle fleshes itself out into visible, tangible evidence in the life of the church. Unity is something the church already possesses spiritually, but it is something for which the body of true believers should strive to perfect, to make manifest, to display what is the reality we have spiritually in Christ Jesus. So there's a sense in which we are already one in Christ, but there is a sense in which there is much to be done to achieve and make manifest the unity that we already have in Jesus Christ. And we are to make it observable. For example, in John chapter 17, verse 23, it says this, Jesus says, I am in them and them and you, you and me, that they may become, may become perfectly one. What's he saying? That we, there is work to be done that there, in order to be perfected in our unity. You know, if you, can, if you imagine a married couple coming to see me and they were to say, listen, there's a complete breach in their relationship. They live in separate rooms and they live in separate, they have separate lives and they have different schedules and different bank accounts. And they sit down with me and they say, pastor, and what are we going to do about this? And I just say, hey, well, don't worry about it. The scripture says you're one flesh. You're good. It doesn't matter if you fight with each other and you don't have any kind of connection with each other in real life. It's good. You're already one flesh spiritually. No, that would be foolish. 
And so therefore, what do we have to do? Just because we have a spiritual unity doesn't mean that we shouldn't labor to flesh it out. And this is of critical importance. It's critically important for us to flesh out the truth of our spiritual unity into real life because it is critical to our witness to the world, Jesus says. He says it twice in this passage, and the second thing I want you to see about, about our unity. Jesus prays. About our prayer, prayer about our unity reveals to us the importance of our unity. Verse 21, he says this, I pray they would be unified in one so that the world may believe that you, Father, have sent me. Verse 23, I pray they may be one so that the world may know that you sent me. We seek unity, and we need to see greater and greater and increasing manifestations of unity amongst God's people so that the world would believe. Our unity declares something. It's interesting, we, we often think about mission as being purely evangelistic, Teach me an apologetics class. Teach me the four spiritual laws. Give me tracts. Teach me how to do evangelism explosion. But yet what we've seen the last couple of weeks, that two primary means by which we are a missional force is by being sanctified in holiness, becoming a people that are salt and light, that are beautiful in this world. And we also are a witness in a missional church when we are unified to one another. What does John chapter 13 verse 35 say? What does Jesus say? That they will know you by your love for one another. This display of unity is so compelling, so unworldly, that the world would look at it and say, how could these people love each other? There could be no other explanation than this than that Jesus actually came from God the Father, Jesus says, and changed them. Community is a missional work that when we gather here merely by the act of gathering and worshiping and hugging each other and welcoming and greeting each other, there is something proclamational to the world going on. Just as sanctification was critical for our mission and witness in the world, so also is our unity. And in so doing, reveal the hands and feet of God. Reveal the truth of who God is. One of the catechism questions that I teach my kids from the earliest age is kids, can you see God? And what are my kids supposed to say? Cade, what do you say? Can you see God? But he always sees me. Right? God, may see, God sees you, but how, so how in the world, if no one can see God, how is he made manifest in this world? You and me. How does he, it's the community of God's church. Not singularly through charismatic preachers, but through the community, the unified community of God's people. We live in an age where church attendance and church involvement are not actually kosher. That travel soccer and doing our own thing and sipping a cup of coffee in a coffee shop on our own and spending time in the woods all by ourselves hiking, that we call this worship. But this is not Christian community and it's not Christianity. We actually are gathered together because by ourselves, we cannot, we cannot clearly, as clearly communicate the glory of Jesus. But together, we proclaim and witness more beautifully to the glory of Jesus Christ and what he has done. So that the world might rightly know who our God is. So are we a church like this that is unified and proclamational? That we would actually invite people in and that we would be warm and affectionate. Frederick Nietzsche said this, if the church wants, to pay, wants us to pay attention to their God, then they're going to have to sing 
a more beautiful song. And by that, he didn't actually mean we need to sing better. He wasn't saying that you have bad voices. What he was saying is that we need to sing a more beautiful song with the life of our community. He's referring to the life of our churches. Are we singing a song of love and unity, of mutual purpose and affection, and a mutual sense that we belong to God? Or do we have a song of disharmony that drives people away? You know why people come back to church? There's three, three, the top, three top reasons. Number three is this, the singing. Three is the worship. Is the worship good? Second, second biggest factor as to why people, after visiting a church one time, why they come back to a church, is what they thought about the preaching, which makes me really happy because we beat out the, 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 the worship people. But there's tight jeans and they're cool lyrics. So preaching still stands. But you know what the number one reason why people come back? Because they felt welcome. Because they felt warmth. And in fact, I heard actually this week, and it actually saddened me, someone told me they had brought some of the church a few times here, and that the person actually described our church as cold. I hadn't heard that in my seven years here. It grieves me. And it scares me. Of all the things that would scare me most, that's what one may, I would say, Lord, may it never be. Would we not be a cold people? But would we be united and harmonious. But think of it. Think of how terrible it would be to our proclamation, our witness. Think of this. And we preach of grace and love and forgiveness and mercy and reconciliation. So what does it communicate when we preach those things and yet we're a divided body? When we refuse to forgive one another, we refuse to pursue one another and seek restoration, seek reconciliation, when there's quarrels and strife in the church. Not only that, but when we spend all of our time trying to adjudicate all the various quarrels in the church, guess what we're not doing? We're not moving out in mission. We're not going to go out and pursue. We're not being able to welcome people in very well. And therefore, so the question is for us, are we singing a song of harmony and unity? You see, if we actually sing a song of harmony and unity, we can draw people in. It could be a means of a radical witness in this world, in a world that hates each other hates each other. Go and get on any kind of commentary feed on any article anywhere on the internet, and you'll see the vitriol and hatred that is the advance in this world. But the church is not to be known this. Wayne Meeks, who is a professor at Yale University, has given his life to studying the early church. And he wrote this, he said this about the early church, to be baptized into Jesus Christ signaled for the early church extraordinary, thoroughgoing re-socialization in which the church was intended to become the primary groups for its members, supplanting all other loyalties. That means this. The church is a bigger deal than your family. That means this, if you want to be an officer in this church and you become an officer in this church, it means this, that my allegiance is first and foremost to the church. Now, as a part of fulfilling my work to this church is I've got to be a good leader of my household, but it means your allegiance is here. You know, we have, we have political elections coming up. Aren't you ready? Aren't you excited for another year of presidential elections and politics? I mean, just, we're just all revving up our engines and getting warmed up. 2020 is coming. We just, we're so excited. Most of you are just excited that the Democrats who are going to be chewing on each other's ears for the next 10 months. But, you know, we think we have it. We are so divided. 
You know, I was talking to somebody before church, and they were like, you know, they were talking about how, thinking about how ridiculous it is when people just hem and haul about how divided we are. It's never been worse. It's never been worse than this. Well, you know what? We should actually go back to the original disciples. Amongst Jesus' 12 disciples, there were these two guys called Matthew and Simon. Matthew was a tax collector. A tax collector was seen as the lowest of the low. They were the worst of the worst. They were traitors to the Jews. They were a Jew who would work for the Romans to steal, kill, and plunder in order to get the money of taxation to give to the Roman, to, to Caesar. And the other was a guy, named, so it was Matthew, and there's another guy in the 12 whose name is Simon. And Simon was known as Simon the Zealot. Zealots were about as radical right-wing nationalists as you can get. They believed in armed conflict. They, their whole desire was to raise up an army to kick Rome out of their country. And what they wanted was to see a glorified Israel that would take up over the whole world. And yet, what do we see in, in, in within Jesus' disciples? His discipleship group. This is who he's got, these two guys. And he brings them together and says, no, they will, these two people who are completely and utterly at odds, who if they were before they met Jesus, if they were to meet in a back alley, someone would come out, not come out alive. And yet what do we see? That they are united in mission for the glory of Jesus. The starkest political comments in the room, in this room, have nothing compared to Simon and Matthew. Nothing. And yet here they are. And it is a witness to the world. When God's people, when Jew and Gentile alike. And so we must be diligent to pursue unity. Ephesians 4.3 says this, being diligent to pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, which means this, the word diligent, you use the word diligent when you talk to your kids when you want them to do what? To work hard. To work hard. Unity is so fragile. Spiritual unity is so hard to maintain because men, even Christian men and women, are sinners and therefore we move towards disharmony instead of towards harmony. It is like the law of entropy in human relationships. Christians are like, I love this, this word picture, Christians are like porcupines in a snowstorm. That we have a desperate need to stay close to one another. But when we get close to each other, we have this tendency to poke each other constantly with our quills. And so the fact of the matter is this. There's an old ditty in the church world that goes like this. To dwell above with the saints we love. Oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints we know. Well, that's another story. (laughs) Henry Nouwen says, to put it maybe less cheesily, he says, you know what community is? It is the place where the person you least want to live with lives. It is the place where the person you least want to live with lives. We want to live under the illusion that somewhere out there is an awesome group of people who are just like me and we can do life together. In which we can all look exactly alike and have the same lifestyle, and be in the same stage of life. I just want normal people to do community with. But there are not any. There are people just like me and you, screwed up and sinful people who join up and we become a screwed up and sinful unified body that form a beautiful community. It's hard. It places demands on us. So how in the world do we get what we need in order to put in the flesh the kind of unity that we need to display to the world's? This is the last thing Jesus prays for. Jesus reveals in this prayer for us the means of our unity. I want you to see it in two ways. And I want you to see this in this word perfected. He said it in verse 23, that they would be become perfectly one. 
That means that while we have an objective spiritual unity now, that the manifestation of our unity will grow. Just like the fact is this, that you are justified before in God's sight right now. You are in his sight righteous. In actuality, that righteousness has to take on flesh in your life so that more and more you are sanctified and look more and more like Jesus. In the same way, we are corporately sanctified in the form of greater unity. And that's going to look like this. Which if we wanna, the means of this unity is first an ever-increasing submission to the Word of God. An ever-increasing submission to the Word of God. Jesus says this at verse 20, at the very beginning of the section of the prayer. He says, I do not ask for these only, that's speaking of his apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. How do you get spiritually connected to God? What is the means by which that happens is through the proclamation of the word. It is community, unity is built in, through, and around the truth of God's word. Truth is the basis of Christian unity, the apostolic message and gospel. This is what we're to be after. This is really important. Now, some of you may have experienced that if you've been in the Christian world for very long, often what you'll hear when there's rallying cries, and every couple of years there will be a rallying cry in a community that we need to get unified. And if you've, especially if, you're maybe, if you've been on a campus before in which there's going to be this big emphasis amongst various campus ministers, let's get all the campus ministries together and we just got to, we need to have one huge worship event. And that's lovely and that's great. But the problem is usually unity is in those contexts are almost, is almost never defined and typically what people were trying to unite around was simply the concept of unity itself. It's unity around the idea that we need to be unified. But what Jesus says that we're unified around is the truth. An ever-increasing, ever-more-nuanced embracing of the truth of Jesus Christ. A genuine unity can only be found in the common commitment to the truth of God's revelations. Even if Christians can and do disagree about the details of the things revealed. But it's a gathering together and saying, we want to be united in submission to this word. This is why one of the, the places where we would say, no, we have to break fellowship with some money, is if they say that they do not hold to the word of God. Where we say, yes, where you are willing to submit, we may disagree with what it says, but where you're willing to submit to your understanding of what the scripture says, what the spirit has revealed through the words, if you'll submit to that, then we can be united to one another. And by the way, if I could just make a word of, in defense of denominations, you know, one of the things that it sounds very, very spiritual that people will show up and say is this, is I'm merely a Christian. I don't want to, I don't want to talk about these denominations. And yes, denominations are the sign of division, but also in equal form, they are also the sign of greater unity. In other words, that they are increasingly trying to say, we embrace not just the Apostles' Creed, we don't just embrace the Nicene Creed, but we actually have come and are unified increasingly more and more around more and more understanding of the Scriptures. And so don't, don't brag about the fact that you're part of a non-denominational church, and this isn't one. A non-denominational church is what? More disconnected from the body of Christ corporate than any other church out there. There's actually no accountability. There's actually no sign and manifestation of unity. It's actually doing the conformist pattern of let's just have the lowest common denominator as possible. But actually, if we want unity, it's that we get our noses in our Bible and we say we will study hard. 
We will, we will focus on this. We will increasingly want to come into more and more nuanced understanding of what it says. Now, let me go one step further, though. We can break unity when we add to the scriptures or when we hold the non-essential truths as being essential. There's an old proverb, it's not scriptural, but it has a measure of wisdom in it, and it goes like this. In things essential, unity. In things non-essential, liberty. In all things, charity. In other words, in those things that are essential, as God's people, the core of what we ought to believe, that we should strive for unity. There should be no difference. And so things like the things that studied in the Apostles' Creed, that we have we, that God is, that Jesus is true, fully God and fully man, that he was born of the virgin birth, that he lived a righteous life, that he died an atoning death, that he rose from the dead, that he is coming again one day, that he is the judge of all the earth. These things, there is, there is unity. But in non-essentials, there's liberty. And therefore, at this church, one of the things that you'll see is that we have five commitments. That you get, we have the membership vows. And none of them say this. I promise to baptize my infant child. None of them say, I promise to believe in the five points of Calvinism. Now, the elders of this church believe that. And our confession of faith believes those things. But what do we actually say you have to believe? You have to get up and say, I'm a sinner in need of the grace of God. And the grace of God comes in Jesus and Jesus alone. And that I should strive to live in obedience to him. And I'll submit to the church and then pursue and be a part of the mission of the church of God's people. And so in, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, submission to God's word. Ever-increasing submission to God's word. Second means of how we experience this unity is an ever-increasing experience of the love of God. Let me read verses 22 and 23 to you. It says this, and I want you to follow along closely. It says this, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Jesus has given us glory, that they may be one. Why does he give us glory? What is the means of us being unified? Receiving glory from Jesus. It keeps going. Verse 23, I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. You see what it says? That we, we, we looked at this at the very beginning of the Lord's Prayer a number of months back. The first week when we saw the gift that is ours to, to come to God and call him Father. You see what it says? That God loves you with the same measure and degree that he loves Jesus. We paused and pondered on that, but let's ponder again and bring out some more detail. What in the world would that mean? Let's look at how the God the Father loves God the Son and come to understand, to draw this in a little bit more. Because it is the degree that you understand God's love for you that you'll then love other people, that you'll be unified. What is the Father's love for the Son like? The first answer to that is God's love is infinite. God's love is infinite. You know what infinite means? Infinite is, is that there is no limits on God's love. There are no limits. Which is why God's love, in which we see there's no limits to the degree that he'll go. His love is as far as the east is from the west. 
It is limitless. It is unending. Can you imagine any of the limits of Father's love for the Lord Jesus Christ? That he, the Father would look at Jesus and say, you know what, that's, that's too far. I don't love you. No further. And yet, that's, how, that's how he loves you. That there's no limit to his love for you. There's no point in which he has said, I'm too busy. Or that's too much of an ask of me. So he loves us infinitely. God the Father loves Jesus Christ eternally. Eternally. An infinite love, we say, without limits. An eternal love is without end. That means it's a time measurement. It doesn't ever end. Once he has placed his love upon you, it never goes away, no matter what you've done. It never goes away. Can we think of the infinite affection that existed between the first and second persons of the Trinity? Would it ever cease? Would, ever, would it ever stop, cease to exist? That's the love God has for you. The Lord says, I am the Lord, I do not change. And therefore, his love for you does not change. It will never cease. It will never end. And lastly, the third characteristic of the Father's love for the Son is it's perfect. It is perfect. One of the things I'm learning as a parent in my love for my children is I'll look at various situations and I don't know how to love them. It's not a matter of my lack of willingness to sacrifice. It's not a matter of my feeling and affection for them. It's that I don't know what's best. Do I let them suffer and suffer the natural consequences or do I protect them from this? Do I push them into this or do I hold them back? I don't know. And it drives you crazy because you want to love it. That, 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 our father doesn't have that dilemma. He loves the son perfectly and therefore he loves you perfectly we overindulge sometimes we don't express enough there is always the perfect expression of god's love for us he always loves us consistently and perfectly and eternally and infinitely so is there any evidence though of this that god loves us like this it's this fact here's the evidence that god would love us like this that he would love us eternally and infinitely and perfectly it said that we had a God who enjoyed the perfect unified dance of the love amongst the members of the Trinity. And what was that God willing to do? To be broken up. To be broken up in the sense that God the Father turned away from God the Son on the cross so that we might be brought into unity with God and with one another. And it said over and over and over and over and over again in the New Testament. God's love for you. God's love for you. Why does Jesus come? Because God loves us and he longed to be unified to us. And when you understand that, when you get that, when you see what Father and Son and Spirit were willing to give up the heartbreaking, rending act of the cross, then you'd say, what would I be willing to give up to be unified with my brother and sister. I'd be willing to give up my rights. I'd be willing to give up my Tuesday nights. I'd be willing to give up my seat. I'd be willing to give up my preferences for worship. I'd be willing to be offended and not lash out. I'd be willing to forgive even though it hurts. I'd be willing to pursue restoration and to communicate when I've been hurt because I so longingly want to be connected to you in relationship that I don't want this rift between us. What would drive that? 
the cross of Jesus Christ, when you wake up every day and you say, I am willing to embrace a cross. As Jesus embraced the cross to be united to me, I'll embrace the cross to be united to my brothers and sisters. It's in this truth, the more and more we come to understand the truth of God in Jesus, that we actually begin to express that more beautifully in our love and affection for one another. He who has ears, let him hear, and God help us. Let's pray. Lord, this was um, a very um, 30,000 foot view on unity. And Lord, when I think of the unity of our church and the unity of the church worldwide, it makes me want to say, Lord, um, I don't care about your, the unity that you desire near as much as you do. And it also makes me really grateful and want to cry out to you to say, Jesus, please continue to pray this prayer that your church would be unified, that your church would be beautiful in this world of disharmony and division. May your church be brought together in harmony and love and mutual affection for one another. And so, gracious God, I pray that this particular expression of God's people in this city, King's Chapel, that we would be a unified people. We didn't get into all the details of it, but Lord, I pray that we'd be a people who are free of gossip and free of slander and free of bitterness, that we would be a people full of love and forgiveness. We'd be a people full of affection and a willingness to bear up under the burdens of others. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit would come and fill us up for this task because we cannot do it on our own. We are people who would be naturally disharmonious to one another. And so, gracious Heavenly Father, forgive us where we have cared so little about this. And that, Lord, we would be a people who love and know the truth of the word of God so beautifully that we would speak the truth and live the truth in love towards one another. We pray this in Jesus Christ. Amen.